Hi, I'm Stuart Legere, Associate Artistic Director of Zupa. Welcome to Carry the Spark, Reflections on the Movement, a limited podcast series highlighting fascinating conversations with leading climate activists on the state of the climate crisis, the need for cautious optimism, and reflections on 50 years of the Ecology Action Centre. For more information, visit zupa.works or ecologyaction.ca. Here we go. I was first involved with EAC back in, a, I should know the exact date, 1979, and EAC was looking for somebody to help out with the energy library. Susan Holtz was a part-time worker um, doing energy, working with the energy committee and basically specializing in that. And Susan Mayo was the, the overall coordinator. They were, it was a very small organization at that time, So, but the Canadian Friends Service, which is Quakers, they generously donated enough money to hire on a part-time person with my position um, for 10 hours a week, and it was such an incredibly good opportunity for me that I quit my full-time job, and I said, this is what I want to do. I think these people are so, it'd be such an honor and so much fun to work at EAC at that time. So I quit my full-time job and started working 10 hours a week, which slowly morphed into most of the time. I was paid for 10 hours a week, but money wasn't that important. Um, it never has been, but it really wasn't important in my life at all in those days. So it worked. So my job was a, as energy librarian and the center at the time was a, uh, in the basement of the forest building which is on the, the uh, Dalhousie campus. At that time, it was a huge old stone and brick building that was um, vacant. It was supposed to be at some point slated for renovation, but it was vacant. And so they graciously allowed EAC to have space in the basement. You had to walk through a very dark basement hall to get to our office. The office wasn't that incredibly dark. It wasn't particularly light either. Um, had two basement windows in the main room, right? And the other two rooms, there were no windows. Anyway, it was it was a wonderful place to work. And I walked in and I met Susan and Susan. And I can't remember if I knew other people at EAC or whether I just, whether I had gone to a meeting that they had sponsored or gone to something. But that that's how it started. And then it went on from there. And one particular memory, which it was early on, like very early on, it started in late November, I think. And then in January, we had the annual general meeting for that past year. And there we had, there was a lot of people there. There was between 50 and 75 people probably at an annual general meeting for this wonderfully lively organization. Might have been more than that. And David Brooks was a speaker from Energy Probe in Ottawa. And he talked about the Conserver Society and it used such positive terms and such um, inspiring images of what society could look like that it was just so in those in those early days I started as a librarian which meant organizing the 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 energy files and finding new documents to put into the files and um, and then went on to do pretty much everything whatever came up somebody did it and Susan Holtz did the energy did a lot of energy research Susan Mayo, as coordinator, did all everything, and I sort of did everything too. We we all kind of worked together as a, as a very small team, and then there were active committees. It was it was just a very small but friendly 
very friendly place, even if it was in the basement of the forest building. In the basement of the forest building, in that, that main room that had two windows, two basement windows that let in a little tiny bit of light, there was um, two desks and lots of shelving for, for all the files. But for a table, like a working table, whenever we had our committee meetings, we had a big spool like you would have from our electrical cables. If you know what I mean, it's like this this big round empty spool and sitting on its side. So there we are with our papers and our teacups and whatnot, sitting around this very luxurious affair in the basement of forest going. And those are the, so in the early days, it was a, a very modest organization with high aspirations and high energy. The, the structure was that there were committees. There was an urban committee, an agriculture committee, an energy committee, and a recycling committee. And each of those committees basically were semi-autonomous. So there was a board member that was a sitting member of each committee, but didn't necessarily dictate the progress or the work done by the committee. The committee dictated its own work and then did report progress to the board of directors. But each committee pretty much was open to doing what it wanted to do. If there was a decision that the committee wanted to take legal action or do something that would be very expensive or very politically difficult or challenging, then that would clearly have to go to the board. But if the committee wanted to, to do a, uh, a presentation at a public hearing or set out a press release or do something that was, you know, take a direction and study this particular area, there was uh, each, each committee did, did what it wanted. And that amount of autonomy gave a lot of um, opportunities to pursue the things that people wanted to pursue and wanted to do. So that was a real strength. And I think that doesn't necessarily, that amount of autonomy doesn't exist necessarily in other um, organizations, certainly within the environmental context, it may. The, the other thing that is really important to remember is that we were a very small group. And so as a small group, the personalities of the individuals were very, <laughs> very relevant, right? And Susan Mayo was a real worker. She just, she lived, breathed, and worked Ecology Action Center. She was sort of behind the scenes a lot of the time, but she was there and she was really the heartbeat of the, not a sensory feeling, but she, she just kind of, she was the only full-time staff person and her, her way of operating, like I said, was kind of behind the scenes and kind of, but very, very conscientious and, and a little bit different. And that's kind of the way, like working in the basement, that was sort of perfect for her. So there was her, and then there was Susan Holt, who was very principled and very directed and very organized and very um, real, a real thinker, really, really high quality thinker. And uh, between the two of them, they set a tone for friendliness and high extreme competence and really severe commitment to what the causes were that we were working on. So that permeated the organizational structure too, because not everything, the committees didn't do everything. Susan and Susan and myself, we did a lot of things that came up that weren't necessarily part of the committee structure, but it all was done with that kind of openness for the ability to do things that you wanted to initiate yourself. It left room for people to do what they wanted and in a way that reinforced the importance of accuracy and high quality work, precision, and also sort of this free-floating, wonderful, <laughs> relaxed look. <laughs> it, was, it was quite an amazing place to work, actually. And like I said, 
I quit my full-time job, which I had tried quite hard to get before. So I quit my full-time job for this 10-hour-a-week job and never, ever looked back. I think the first week I thought, well, this was great. No problems here. It's interesting when you look about comparing EAC in the times that I worked there, starting in 1979, to now, it's a completely huge transformation. EAC is large and is in a much nicer physical space and lots of staff and lots of contracts and, and people working. Even from the beginning, EAC was was very, and Susan Mayo in particular, I would say, really influenced this. We, there were committees, but it also was pretty broadly based, even for a very small organization. And I we always felt stretched, but we didn't feel too stretched. Um, so, but we did work on issues ranging from, you know, energy policy to recycling programs to uh, anti-nuclear campaigns or to anti-uranium mining campaigns. The multiplicity, it wasn't a single focus organization, even way back when, when there were so few staff, it wasn't single focus. And that's one thing that has carried on. Ecology Action Center isn't everything to everybody now, but it is quite broad and it addresses, it, it can, and it certainly doesn't want to, it, we didn't in those days, and I don't think any now would want to say you speak for, for a, with a provincial voice. Ecology Action Center speaks for itself and we spoke for ourselves then. We didn't speak for the whole province, but because we were fairly broad based and we touched on a number of issues, we were, we were broader than you would think. Um, so that's one thing, and that carried on. And I, and, but, but even more, I think one very clear characteristic that has carried on is the real commitment to high quality work and to being an authoritative voice. And if you're, if you say something, then you know what you're talking about. And Susan Mayo in particular, because she did some very, very detailed work on energy policy and on um, energy conservation, conservative society type work. Basically, she, she and some others did some research proposing, looking at different energy scenarios up through, I think it was until the year 2020 or so. When she spoke, there was a recognition that she was actually very well informed <laughs> and that certainly goes without saying now at Ecology Action Center. When, when the media calls up Ecology Action Center for thoughts about something, they're calling because they know they'll get a thoughtful and a well-researched answer. And that's, so that, that's been one of the characteristics of the organization since the beginning and an absolute commitment to the vision that we all had. One other thing that, that we had in common with what the organization is now is the spirit of hopefulness and enthusiasm and fundamentally for the future. It wasn't a hard job. It, I had a friend one time who, a neighbor who said, oh, I know you used to work at Ecology Action Center. That must have been so hard. It's so depressing. How could you do it? And I remember thinking, no, not, not really. It, <laughs> it was really quite, quite a positive place to work. Quite a bit of enthusiasm and energy for some of the campaigns we worked on. And for everything, for coming to work every day, it wasn't it wasn't a situation where you you thought about doom and gloom all day. You actually thought about some of the positive things all day long that you were doing and that you knew would be eventually would come to bear fruit. So all those things, the the, the competence, the the speaking with authority about what you know, really know to be true, and the commitment to the organization fundamentally, are sort of conceptual legacies of 
um, from the starting in the old days. If you look at some of the individual issues, like I said, it was 1979 that we that I worked there, and I worked there for several years after that, but I started in 79. Having been so many years ago, the luxury of that is that actually there's the passage of time has enabled us to see some of the progress made on some of those things we worked on many, many years ago. Really, on, on many fronts, there has been a lot of progress, not only because of Ecology Action Center. I certainly would recognize the, the input and the strong roles of many other organizations um, and many people. There has been significant improvements. Um, the uh, uranium mining never took place. That was a huge thing. We, we were able to collectively, and this wasn't even, the uranium mining campaign was not even really led by Ecology Action Center. We were part of a coalition of many different organizations who worked on that together. Um, but it never took place. There was an a inquiry into it, and then there was a lot of uh, people who didn't want uranium mining, and then at the same time, the economics of uranium mining sort of tanked at the time. So when, when it was not a difficult decision for the politicians to decide to put a moratorium on because the uranium mining wasn't so profitable at that time, and there were lots of people who didn't want it. So that's one thing that there was real successes in. Well, even in the energy field, and that I can't say it's all due to the Ecology Action Center because it certainly wasn't. It's due to the whole multiplicity of people and organizations. But um, Susan Holtz, I think I can give her individual credit for this way back, um, probably was in 1978 or maybe thereabouts anyway, where she intervened in a public utility board rate hearing for the Nova Scotia Power Corporation, what was the Nova Scotia Power at the time. And that was to set, um, to ask questions and to challenge the rate structures for um, charging electricity. In those days, if you can believe it, you paid less per kilowatt the more you used. So if you used, <laughs> I know it was kind of crazy. If you used a little bit, you paid more per kilowatt, and then then it would go up to the next level. Whereas if you pay, if you used a little bit more, you'd pay a little bit less per kilowatt. But if you used a lot more, you'd pay less per kilowatt yet again. So there was a real incentive for using more, and she challenged that. That was that was the, in those days the power corporation wanted you to buy their power and wanted to generate power. So she challenged that. She and a team of probably ten to fifteen advisors and other people working they were there at the public utility board hearing it was uh, that was probably one of the very early times that people began to really sit up and say they know what they're talking about <laughs> because she and the team and they had a lawyer because in those days you had to have a lawyer to intervene in a public utility board hearing the this was a quite a big deal and went on for weeks i don't remember how many weeks it was but that was a big thing and now you would laugh at the thought of the public of the power corporation charging less for using more energy, right? They, they, they wouldn't get away with that now. So again, that's not just, but it was Susan's, it was her tenacity. And she was, she was just a, such a, such a fighter deep down inside her. And she was so curious and so smart that she would sit there and just think it all through and ask piercing questions. And in the end, they didn't change the rate structure right away. They, I think they agreed and I really shouldn't say exactly what the results were. My recollection was the results were that they agreed to study the idea and it didn't get studied for a while, but it did get studied in the end and things changed. If you look at another topic, um, recycling, for example, 
Ecology Action Centers certainly wasn't the only organization to recycle, but it did start at the very, very early days with the very first, one of the very first projects before I even started um, was, was recycling depots and recycling education, paper recycling. You know, we're, we're talking a long time ago here when paper recycling wasn't automatic. and when, But that's the point. It was something that was somewhat novel. And we succeeded in, we went on after um, the initial paper recycling depot system that was quite successful with the early, early days. We went on to develop a, a, pay, a curbside collection program in Spryfield and, and Fairview, a joint effort between Ecology Action Center and the Boy Scouts and an organization called Coalition Supportive Services which was an organization that employed ex-offenders, gave opportunities for gainful employment to ex-offenders. And what they did largely was to help people move. So they had a big truck and they offered to join forces with us. So Ecology Action Center did uh, the organizing and a lot of the PR and a lot of the, the behind the scenes stuff and a lot of the education. The Boy Scouts delivered the pamphlets to individual houses telling them about the program and the coalition support services collected the on the street the paper that was put out for recycling and i went on them on the truck usually with them each time it was quite it was quite fun actually so here we had this organization the ecology action center with the sort of the environmentalists of the crowd and then the boy scouts and i went to one of the boy scout meetings which was a riot. The Boy Scouts were so keen. They were absolutely keen in the program, but they also were serious Boy Scouts. You know, they they had their uniforms on and they were marching around in the gym preparing for whatever they were doing and before we had the meeting about the recycling program. So it was and then there was these ex offenders who were ex cons from the from the penitentiary who were hauling the paper. So we had a coalition with those three. And then as, as I was thinking about that, I remembered also that for a part of the publicity for the program, we had um, the premier at the, of the day was John Buchanan, and his wife was interested in recycling. So she agreed to be interviewed about the program. So I went out to their house and interviewed her, or was there when the press interviewed her um, for whatever show it was. So we had sort of the politicians of the day, the Boy Scouts, the Ecology Action Center, and the ex-offenders all running around together promoting this thing. And it was quite successful. We had a lot of uptake. People were very, very committed to putting their paper out at the right time. In the end, it, the program was quite successful, and it showed that there was enough interest in it that and actually, I don't remember who it was that took it over, but some other private entity took it over because it, it was profitable and it people wanted to do it. And then you fast forward to the 1990s, we get the, the comprehensive waste management strategies that we have in Nova Scotia today, which don't seem all that radical today. But at the time, it was quite progressive to to have uh, the paper recycling and the metal and the glass, et cetera, and, and then the composting. And really, Nova Scotia is a leader in, in waste management, waste diversion in many jurisdictions because most places don't do it as well as we do in Nova Scotia. There's a lot of room for improvement still. Now, you never would say that our little recycling program led to to the provincial initiative, but all those kinds of steps together led to to the successes. So in terms of the issues, so waste management, recycling, clearly was one thing that started um, way back when I was there as well. So uranium mining, um, agriculture, 
we had a very small burgeoning agriculture committee that was led by Peggy Hope Simpson, dear friend who has passed away two years ago in her 90s. But in her earlier days, she was uh, fearless and unstoppable. And she led the charge in the very early days of more sustainable agriculture. And the Agriculture Committee spearheaded some early, early days of meetings of farmers and whatnot, looking at sustainable agriculture and ways that we could promote that. I guess nuclear energy also. Nuclear energy, there was a major, major push against nuclear energy and Point Le Pro in particular, because Point Le Pro was, and that was in the days of Three Mile Island down in Pennsylvania. That happened not long after I first started working there. And that was just a hard hitting example of what, um, what it's like to live next to a nuclear power plant and what some of the hazards were associated with it. So there was there was demonstrations and there were major works. And certainly Ecology Action Center was not the only organization and probably was lesser than organizations in New Brunswick. Clearly, we don't have any more nuclear and we don't have any new nuclear power plants. The point of the pro is still going, but we don't have any new plants. And all of those, you look at all those successes together and you think, Things are looking pretty good. There's lots of new problems, but things have changed for the better in some ways. Well, financial challenge probably would be one very real challenge. When I first started, Susan Mayo as coordinator of the center, Susan Susan Holtz is a part-time person. Her, her salary was paid by the Canadian Friends Service. But Susan Mayo's salary was paid by membership. My salary, small as it was, was also paid by the Canadian Friends Service. So that really helped um, Susan Holtz and myself. But Susan May was pretty much paid by membership dues. The standard membership due was $10 a person in those days. So you'd have to have a lot of members to really pay. So the organization didn't have enough money to pay her. And I don't recall how often or how long she had to go to be unemployed. But there were periods where she was basically laid off because she they, they she just could not be paid from the from the revenue. So I think it was about the time that I was hired in 1979, the Peggy Hope Simpson, who was the, this fearless lady I've mentioned before, but this fearless lady and just a just a gem of a person. And I believe it was probably Susan's, Susan Mayo's mother, but I'm not sure that it was her mother. Um, they spearheaded a, a membership campaign where they hand wrote. We had newsletters that we sent out. The, the early newsletter was called Juicin'. And then later on, we switched it to Between the Issues. And then on those newsletters, Peggy and Susan's mother would handwrite notes to everybody whose membership had expired. In addition to that, they reached out to a lot of new people. But I remember Peggy in particular just sitting there for hours and hours. For uh, She devoted a couple months anyway to this membership campaign. And the membership campaign worked. We got, I think her goal was probably a thousand members, but we, I remember having 600 active members in the organization. That's not bad. After that time, I don't recall any time that Susan Mayo had to be laid off. So there were, that was a major challenge, but it also was a major success because the, we got enough members. And by having more members, you have more support. And by more support, you have more people who care and more people who care Then it, you know, it snowballs in a positive direction. So that was, that was all positive, but money certainly wasn't the only challenge we had. Well, but we going back to the money. I think I mentioned before, a few minutes ago, we lived rent free 
in the basement of the forest building. We were always borrowing things from people. Like, like there, there was no, there was no money to buy anything. Susan used to borrow or get donations of file folders from people from organizations that had used their file folders once and didn't, you know, and hadn't used the other side. So she would get stacks of them and and reuse them. We used to do our photocopying at Alan Ruffman. Uh, Alan Ruffman was a board member who also was was one of the most incredibly high energy and smart and just committed people. Um, he had a small business, an oceanographic consulting firm downtown. So when we had major photocopying to do, no problem. We would ride our bicycles down to <laughs> downtown to Alan Ruffman's office and photocopy on his photocopy machine <laughs> because he donated the, the cost of the, you know, the photocopying. Everywhere along the way, I remember one day I was returning from his office and on my bicycle and the wind picked up or something and the whole thing just blew across Spring Garden Road. It was just terrible. So that photocopying, that didn't work out very well that time, but usually it was a very effective way. So we were always borrowing things and getting free donations of things. And, but that didn't seem like a hardship, really. It was, that's just the way things were. So money was, a, was a, definitely a challenge and it was an issue that had to be dealt with and the board was very good at um, dealing with that. The other issue sort of goes back to what I was saying a few minutes ago. Um, as a small organization, how do you get to be well known for quality, competent work on a variety of topics? So probably those two things, the money, the money was definitely the biggest challenge, but another challenge would have been how, how to proceed because we couldn't do everything, but we, we wanted to do things well that we were doing. 